Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Seidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for PyLog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, May 2nd, 2021. Margaret Brennan had her baby, so congratulations, yes, congratulations. to the... Her husband doesn't have Brennan, but to the Brennan and whatever his last name family <laughs> is. <laughs> to her household. To her, yes, her to the Brennan household. Baby Malik looks very cute in the picture that was on Face the Nation today. Big congratulations to them. Absolutely. So that takes us actually straight to show ratings this week, Naomi. What shows did you cover and where would you put them? Starting with Face the Nation and John Dickerson hosting. I had some pretty good episodes. Face the Nation. It's the first episode. I think like you, I don't know how it happened, but I feel like this is my first Maybe this is the third week that No, he's... it's just the second week of John Dickerson. Oh, okay. So that maybe that's why. It was a treat. It was quite a delight to hear a whole episode with John Dickerson. I'm going to talk a lot about it in today's episode. I'm giving it a five. Wow. Stellar, stellar episode. And then the other show I covered was Fox News Sunday, and it was also pretty dang good. So I'm going to give it a four. Wow. Really nice ratings. I know. It, it was a treat. What well, did you cover? I covered State of the Union. I will give Which it a- came out like at 7 a.m. It was a very difficult <laughs> thing to cover this. It was the the That was like the bane of, the of our Sunday trying yeah. to get that footage. Yeah. Okay, keep yeah. going. Sorry. Anyway, State of the Union, I am so glad we tracked it all down and I was able to take a look at it because it is a four, very close to five, but a four, mostly because of the excellent and very vital aside that Jake Tapper had at the end talking about truth and particularly the Republican Party, and he did just an excellent job. But the rest of the show was, eh, it was okay. So that's where it goes to a four. Wow, that that, <laughs> that closing's really carrying a lot of weight. <laughs> what yeah. else did you cover? Uh, I also looked at this week. This week is probably just a three. Martha Raddatz was there. She had some conversations with Senator Barrasso, the Republican senator. She had an interesting conversation with the National Security Advisor. I really appreciated the coverage of India that she focused on. I wish it would have been a little longer. But overall, it wasn't super great. It wasn't a real standout. We had Ram and Christy back at the panel together. And the there was a whole piece at the end looking back at the Bin Laden raid 10 years ago, which is absolutely the definition of old news. So, yeah. And then Meet the Press. Meet the Press is a two this week. Oof. It, oh, I heard your huffing and I was sighing. so frustrated by this episode, <laughs> and we're going to talk a lot about it today. Just as a little preview, my number one point of frustration was not who they booked. They had a great slate of people they had booked to talk about Joe Biden's new agenda that he unveiled at his joint session of Congress. Not a State of the Union, but sort of like a State of the Union. They had the right people to talk about it. Meet the Press's entire focus was, I thought, on the wrong thing. 
and not super relevant to the audience. So that's why I was very, very frustrated and disappointed. So that gets into the bad category. You said it was a two, right? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah two is bad. Three is okay. Right. All right. Well, let's jump to it then. To it. <laughs> very nice. Oh, my gosh. Quality, questionable. What should we start with? Quality or questionable, Brendan? Let's start with quality because you felt so strongly about that. And I don't know what it is, but you said, I need quality today. So tell me. Okay, so my quality moment is, <laughs> it's quality because I've been thinking about it all day. And it's a moment from a panel on Fox News Sunday. And that alone, wow. I feel like, deserves a spot on the agenda because, listen, panels have been a source of frustration for me on many shows. And on Fox News Sunday in particular, it almost 100%. Maybe, obviously not 100%. 95% of the time, I barely suffer through it. And today's episode, I felt like, one, there weren't like the super intense partisan voices that are just there to kind of be antagonistic, like Karl Rove or whatever. They weren't on. And Mm -hmm. it felt like a truly reflective conversation. But more than that, I felt like I heard something that, had me thinking and felt like a, an accurate summary of what I've seen in the news for a long time, but somehow gave it a new spin that has me thinking about what does this mean next, right? So it's both reflective and like forward thinking. Yes, but what's it about? Yeah. <laughs> I, this so, is all introduction. I still don't know what the topic is or who said it. So it was a comment from pollster Kristen Soltis Anderson. She is a Republican pollster. I this comment made me miss her old podcast, The Pollsters. Is that not on anymore? No, yeah, her Margie O'Mara kind of like ended it maybe a year ago. They had a falling out, or they just ended their podcast. I, they just ended the podcast. Oh, okay, we don't have to be so dramatic here. You were just like they ended it. <laughs> no, they, they ended the podcast. <laughs> They're just very busy, successful women. Okay. Anyway, she made a comment about how Republicans are feeling about government in their lives. Kristen, the White House has clearly made a calculation that in the wake of the pandemic and in the wake of the multi-trillion dollar bills that the Republican Senate and President Trump signed, that there is a shift in public attitude about government programs. Uh, Two questions. Does the polling back that up, that shift in public opinion? Is big government back? Polling tends to show that Americans slightly prefer more government with more services to a smaller government with less services. But at the same time, we're seeing 20-year highs in terms of the percentage of Americans who say they are dissatisfied with how government is working. It's a little bit of a, the food is terrible and the portion so small kind of dynamic going on where Americans don't think that government is great at doing the things it's supposed to be doing, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're looking to slash government. So Democrats, I think, are in a somewhat precarious position because people do want to see things that will tangibly make their lives better. On the other hand, trillion dollar big bill after big bill after big bill, if it becomes too diffuse, too disconnected from what people are actually feeling in their real lives and it just becomes huge numbers and headlines, that does present a real opportunity for Republicans to harness that anxiety and bring back the sort of energy against big government that we saw perhaps during the Gingrich era or during the rise of the Tea Party. Now, I found that so insightful because I felt like it connected two 
trains of thought that we've heard a lot that people want tangible differences in their lives, that Democrats need to dream big and act big so people are motivated to vote for them again, but at the same time also connects that frustration that like, why doesn't my government care about me? And so oftentimes they seem like competing messages, but I thought what Kristen Soltis Anderson did really well here, she kind of ties the two together really well to show what is the Republican opportunity and what is the Democratic weakness. And Who's going to really be effective in in taking on this moment? Yeah, it, it's an interesting comment. She says, "How did she phrase it?" The food is terrible, and the portion's so small. No, I, I love, love I love that. I love that phrase, and I have heard that before mentioned about other things. But she said, "Americans slightly prefer more government with more services to smaller government." The polling I saw has that around 10, 11, 12 point difference right now, which I don't think is slight. I think that's a slight is like two or three points. So I'm a little, maybe she has other polls that she's actually looking at from the one that I'm familiar with. But I do think that's an interesting point about potentially the public seeing big bills. And because they're coming so fast, it's unclear which one is helping them and which one isn't or Mm -hmm. or where the help is coming from. And which one is doing what? And which one is failing? Right. It's almost like a series of waves breaking on the beach and you're tumbled over, but you don't know which one, which one knocked you over. Yeah. And so at least something's moving and you feel something in your life that's positive. I mean, that is a big difference. Hopefully, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's what she's positing here is that people need to feel something for there to remain support for the Biden administration. My question is, what? where is the position? Where is her position in this? Because it almost sounds like she's being critical. Of, she's a pollster. Quote, <laughs> hold on. She's, but she's a Republican pollster. She's critical of, quote, trillion dollar big bill after big bill after big bill, diffuse, disconnected. She's calling these bills. And yet, what's the alternative? Small bills that happen less frequently and have even less impact on people's lives? How would the public recognize those effects is my question to her. Yeah, I guess I would say that wasn't doesn't sound like that's what the research was looking at. But the other thing I wanted to say is I was reviewing originally my quality was just going to be that and that I thought it was effective. And then I was reviewing my notes and then I noticed that this almost same exact question came up to somebody of the Biden administration. I thought, oh, how interesting. I wonder how they answered it. So this is a moment in the Ron Klain interview on Face the Nation with John Dickerson. Ron Klain is Biden's chief of staff. Okay, Ron, on the uh, on the domestic front, the president's proposals, it seems like he's trying to do two things, sell a whole bunch of programs and a mindset. So there's family leave, broadband. It's quite a list. But he's also arguing basically that 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 um, that government is good in American life. And what I wonder is, at a time where we have low faith in government and institutions, can the American people handle that big of a uh, that much change in their life that the president's offering them? Well, John, I think what the president's offering them is what political figures, Democrat and Republican, have talked about for decades. Let's fix our bridges and roads. Let's give people a family leave when they have a new child or a sick parent. Uh, let's get kids universal pre-K. Uh, these are pretty basic things. And I think that uh, the 
Washington has talked about them for decades. The bold thing that President Biden is doing is laying out a plan to actually deliver them, a way that these things, these long promised things, finally actually happen. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, I, I think the American people are long overdue. They've been promised that their infrastructure will be fixed for 50 years. Right. Where is the delivery on that? What? And I think that's really what this is all about. So, Brendan, what do you think about answer from Ron Klain? Well, I think he he tried to boil it down and say these are simple things and the benefits are things that people are already familiar with. They're just lacking. And that might be part of their frustration at the government not doing what it's set out to do or what they've been promised. Yeah, I think that's what he's trying to do. I think he fails, though, to acknowledge the true frustration of how people feel about government and acknowledge that it's not okay to have such as John Dickerson, such low faith in government, and that it's up to government to step up and prove, essentially, that these are things that, yes, we agree you deserve, and yes, we're going to actually make it a reality in your life. And he kind of says that, right, towards the end. These are things that are long promised, finally actually happening. It almost seems like a comment to galvanize Democrats, not a comment to appease skeptical Republicans. So I disagree with your assessment of that a little bit. I think what you said there really brought to light for me the fact that Ron Klain here does not want to engage in the conversation of big government, small government. Oh, yeah, that's probably true, too. (laughs) Yeah, he and the Biden administration don't want to talk, really, about government. They, They don't want to say this is government. He's just like... You want the bridge to, to to be fixed, right? You want paid family leave. They're like good things in your life. And don't worry about where they're coming from. Don't put that big, scary word government on it. Like people might be concerned about, you know, takeover, government takeover of this sector or that sector or whatever. And he and the Biden administration, it sounds like from this answer and other things that we've heard, want to say, want to disassociate They want to talk about the the problem and the gaps. Yeah, they want to talk about the problem. They want to talk about giving people these things that they want, but they don't want to say government's the solution. Don't put us in that name government. We're not some secret, you know, government or whatever. It's just going to happen. You're going to get these benefits that you want. And there you go. I think that's interesting that he doesn't want to engage. And so your frustration is he's not engaging with the question about big government. Right. I'm skeptical if Klain's strategy here is successful, especially if he wants to pass this with 51 votes. And I would imagine the Biden administration is going to get a lot more questions like Dickerson's questions here. I hope they have a better answer. And if they don't, or I guess I'm, I'm curious if this strategy continues very long. Brendan, what is your questionable moment? So one of the reasons why I felt that that answer was really good is that my questionable moment is an answer that is head over heels, way worse, also by the Biden administration. This time on This Week, Martha Raddatz was hosting. She was speaking with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And oh my goodness, here is a actually really astute question from Martha Raddatz about the nuclear situation as it relates to North Korea. And the reason I think it's astute is that It's both thoughtful from a policy perspective and very easy for the audience to understand. Jake Sullivan's answer, on the other hand, makes absolutely zero sense. This is one of the least specific, most vague and nothing answers I have ever heard. Take a listen. It really like belongs in a in a sort of museum. 
And, and speaking of nuclear, North Korea this morning is warning the U.S. will face a grave situation because President Biden called the North a serious security threat. Uh, you have talked about being somewhere in the middle between Trump and Obama. Neither of those plans worked with North Korea. Why does a middle ground seem possible? Well, first, Martha, our policy towards North Korea is not aimed at hostility. It's aimed at solutions. It's aimed at ultimately achieving the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And we're prepared to engage in diplomacy towards that ultimate objective, but work on practical measures that can help us make progress along the way towards that goal. And we believe that rather than all for all or nothing for nothing, a more calibrated, practical, measured approach stands the best chance of actually moving the ball down the field towards reducing the challenge posed by North Korea's nuclear program. Hey, thanks very much for joining us this morning. So many words to say nothing. Can you believe it? I mean, holy cow, is that a nothing, nothing answer? He said nothing. I mean, I would, I'm not going to do it, but the people listening, just like reverse your, your podcast right now, listen to that answer again and just be like, what did he say there? It's like a class in saying nothing like answering nothing on the test. Like you you didn't study up on the test. You don't know what North Korea is. <laughs> you don't know what nuclear things are. Like what what is that? What are we talking about? And you've got to answer the question and this is what you say, you know? It reminds me of those like model UN conventions in high school where people get on the microphone and they just say nothing for yeah. like three minutes. We're working on practical measures that can help us make progress along the way towards the goal of preparing to engage in diplomacy towards the ultimate objective. It's like, what? It's it's meaningless. Meaningless. And Martha Raddatz, like, was she even listening? Like, she's like, okay, all right. No, that's not okay at all. You have to stop that garbage. What a waste. Holy cow. Anyway, that's a huge low light. But it's actually like it's so bad, it's like good. It's like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And it's unacceptable from an administration official, frankly. All right, Naomi, let's move on to what do you want to talk about, politics or journalism? Of course, my politics is full of journalism, but that's fine. My politics has quite a bit of journalism, too. All right, then. Why don't we begin with that, Naomi? So for my something in politics, I wanted to look at the Bill Cassidy interview on Fox News Sunday. Senator Bill Cassidy is from the state of Louisiana. He went on Fox News Sunday, really, I mean, for talking about several topics, but Chris Wallace really spent a lot of time on the infrastructure plan. I was not surprised by anything that Senator Cassidy said, I was very impressed with lots of the questions that came up from Chris Wallace, specifically like how Republicans are answering questions around cost and fairness and and things of that sort. So to start, I wanted to start with a question that we commented, I think it was last week, and I can't remember in what interview, but we had said, I wish people were asking Republicans, which programs don't your residents need? Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that came up to the T. Maybe for someone Fox News Sunday is watching. I don't know. Thanks. Hi. Listening, you mean? Yeah, same thing. And that question came up in today's interview with Senator Cassidy. Take a look. Let's look, though, at some of the key provisions in the president's jobs plan and in his family's plan. And I want to put them up on the screen. $100 billion for workforce development. 
$400 billion to care for the elderly and disabled, $225 billion for child care, and $200 billion for free preschool. Senator, which of those programs that I just put up, which of those programs do you think people in your state don't need? Every one of those programs should be evaluated. If it's important, it should be advanced. It's not infrastructure. When people say, wait a second, I like this because we need a new bridge across the Calcasieu River in Lake Charles, I'm saying this plan will not give it to you. The amount of spending for roads and bridges is so low that and split between 50 states over five years, you're not going to get your bridge. Now, we may need this. By the way, we just are restarting our, uh, our, our, our bipartisan uh, working group to come at family support for the dependent, uh, children and elderly. But that is not going to give you a road and bridge. And that's what people in my state would really like to see. So I love that. <laughs> Goes through all the money being invested in workforce development, care for the elderly and disabled, child care. And then which of these programs do your people in your state don't need like it's so explicit and the non-answer from senator cassidy is so obvious no he says they want a bridge across the river they don't need these other things give us a bridge we'll <laughs> who be needs child care we got bridges <laughs> yeah just put your children on the bridge <laughs> go and, to work and go to work there you go and then and when you cross <laughs> the bridge to go home they'll be there waiting minimal for you. government solving everything <laughs> <laughs> But listen to this amazing follow-up by Chris Wallace. This is literally immediately after. Yeah, but but I guess the question is, and, and you know, we could argue, and I have uh, uh, back and forth with both sides about infrastructure, but there are a lot of programs that aren't infrastructure. And the question I'm asking you is, should would you support the government paying for them? I mean, I, I looked into it. In your state of Louisiana, the, the, the rate of child poverty is 25 percent. One in four of the children in Louisiana are in poverty. And according to the White House, 42 percent of residents in Louisiana do not have access to, chi to child care. So don't they want, wouldn't they benefit Forget whether it's infrastructure or not. Wouldn't they benefit from these government programs? So I don't know if they would. If you think about the main driver of elevating out of poverty, it's good education. Now, what we saw in the pandemic was teachers unions keeping schools shut, even when the Centers for Disease Control said it was safe to go back. The president wants to give universal pre-K run by the same teachers unions. Now, if you're in Chicago and there's more money going to the school systems and to the unions, and yet they still won't open, not because the CDC says it's uh, not safe, but because they don't want to, your kids are not going to have a better education. They're just not. So whether or not these programs benefit those who need it, we don't know, because it's going through a system which is so poorly served, these same folks we wish to help. I just want to comment and say this is an excellent line of questioning, and I'm so glad you went first, because mine is the obverse of this. Oh, interesting. But this is questioning about the bill, about what it's about. and With numbers. With numbers. Tied to the senator's right. population constituents. Exactly. Yeah, th these are excellent, excellent questions. And my goodness, Cassidy's answers <laughs> are, are insane. They're, they're so bad. Yeah, they're like comically bad, like you mentioned before. I mean, they and they also look worse because the questions are so good. That should be said as well. I think what is most telling here is Chris Wallace wants to know, what is it about your state you think doesn't need this type of support? And 
instead of saying my state doesn't need the support, Cassidy literally goes on a rant about labor, like teachers unions. Yeah. And about schools being closed. That's not what this bill is about. Right. It's it's real bad. So Senator Cassidy is in the gang of 10 that's supposed to be negotiating with Democrats to find a compromise. And if this is the Republican who's supposed to be kind of like willing to negotiate and this is the type of questions or this is these are the type of answers he has ready to go. Like it makes me super skeptical that there's going to be real meaningful progress coming from this gang of 10 or whatever Cassidy's thought leadership is within it. He did not like <laughs> Senator Cassidy was so unprepared, he was willing to even, I don't know if insult is the word, but undercut the interviewer himself. So what's wrong uh, with raising the top tax rate to where it was during the Bush 43 and Obama administrations in order to help the working and middle class? If all you do is look at first degree effects, Chris, you can make a point like that. It sounds just like President Biden speaking to speaking to Congress. And I'm not accusing you. I'm just pointing that out. If you look at the overall effect, the aspiration of this Biden administration is to return to the economy we had before COVID, where we had record low unemployment, which means record high employment for African-Americans, veterans, women, Hispanics, the disabled, high school dropouts with wage growth disproportionately in the lower in the lower quintiles of the income structure. That's where we were seeing the economy really help. Now that was all part of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act bill. You can't separate them. And so if you wanna say, my gosh, these people are making more money, uh, why don't we return and keep the Tax Cut and Jobs Act? That's, that's the flip side of the question you're asking. And I think that flip side is the part that should be emphasized. But the, but the argument is, and there certainly is some data to indicate that the Trump tax cuts benefited the wealthy and corporations more than they did the working and middle class. I'm really liking this series of questions and follow-ups. And is, you gave Fox News Sunday a five, right, this week? Gave it a four. Okay. Well, this, this, what I'm hearing here is like five level, but who knows what else was on the show. Yeah, it's very, very impressive to hear this back and forth. And these are challenging questions. Yes, that's what's worth like emphasizing. Totally. Challenging questions that are targeted to this specific politician. They're, They're challenging, but also fair. Yeah. Right? They're not like gotcha questions by any stretch of the imagination. These are extremely fair, tough questions. From a leader who is negotiating the compromise. Or to, to a leader. To a leader, yeah. yeah. To a Republican leader negotiating the compromise. It's so important that the senators answer directly to how they would talk to their constituents about this bill because they're the ones saying, like, what we should all deserve. And so I'm, I, like, really appreciate this, these questions targeted to, like, what are you going to tell your own people in your state? Yeah, it's almost like... You better be ready for making a better case, Cassidy, when you face the people in your state for re-election than the case you're making here on this show. Absolutely. For why you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, I hope the other shows kind of see these questions. I hope, I just hope we see more of these types of questions because I think, and as as Chris Wallace says, like, you can make the claim that this is supposed to be only traditional infrastructure, fine. But then have some type of answer as to like what you would do for the other things because do you not think it's a problem 
Or do you think it's a problem that should be addressed in another way? The other thing I think it's really worth highlighting here, and I've, I'm really liking how much I have been seeing it, not just from Chris Wallace, but some of these other hosts, is actually hearkening back to look at these bills that Republicans and hopefully Democrats passed in the past and saying, what is the result? What was the result of this, mm-hmm. right? Like, totally. We've seen Sunday show hosts say, hey, Republicans, you said that this tax bill would be revenue neutral, that it would pay for itself, and it hasn't paid for itself. It's cost a lot of money. And now here's Chris Wallace saying, look, you're saying, Bill Cassidy right now, that your tax cuts helped average Americans. But it, there's data that says otherwise, that it helped the wealthy in corporations more than that. Absolutely. And... I recognize it's probably a more challenging interview to go on to not just talk about the bill that you are in support of or resisting, but also your record, right? Your voting record. Yeah. But I think it's it's also fair and I think it's also warranted. Well, especially sh- if you keep citing it, right? Which yeah, Cassidy exactly. did right here. And we don't have time to show this clip, but the other, you know, <laughs> in response, Cassidy goes on to talk about Trump's tax plan that was you know, passed and calls it like a blue collar tax plan, like a a, a blue collar tax bill. And it's like, (laughs) what? (gasps) Who in America? Corporate tax rate. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's anyway, it's a joke. (laughs) It's such a joke. But yeah, I, I was surprised by how poor the Republican messaging was on this. Like be ready to brag about why it's such a bad plan by Biden and why your ideas are so much better. It's Fox News Sunday. Come on, get it together. Brendan, what in politics stood out to you? Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that. So I'm just going to zoom to a different clip than I planned to start with in the politics session, because I'm also talking about this plan and how it was covered. There was one particular point I wanted to highlight as very, very poor Republican messaging against this this series of plans from Joe Biden. And I think it will probably connect really nicely with what we're talking about here. And that is a moment from this week when Martha Raddatz was speaking with Senator John Barrasso. He is the Republican senator from the state of Wyoming. And this stood out to me as just really poor messaging against the bill. Let's go back to President Biden's speech on Wednesday. You've hammered the president's $2 trillion infrastructure proposal, as did Senator Tim Scott during the GOP response on Wednesday. What's the biggest sticking point for you? Well, it's the trillions and trillions of dollars of reckless spending. When I look at this, this is a staggering amount of spending, like someone with a new credit card. And these are for things that we don't necessarily need. We certainly can't afford, but they're going to delight the liberal left of the party. It seems to me that this is a cradle-to-grave role of government, whether it's paying for child care for everyone, college, free college for everyone. And ultimately, someone's going to have to pay for this. It's almost creating an addiction to spending. So it's either massive new debt to China, as well as massive taxing, probably the largest tax increase in 50 years. And anybody that says this is going to be on just the 1% or big corporations. I mean, that's just phony math. Americans understand that with this kind of spending and this kind of borrowing and taxing, everyone is going to get hit in their wallet. Our new ABC Ipsos poll shows more than half of those polled willing to raise taxes if it will help the economy. So this stood out to me as somewhat comical in a way, where we heard Senator Barrasso say, 
Literally, these are things we don't need. And then the two things he himself suggests and mentions in the bill are childcare and college. And it's like, are you speaking for the rich old white men of Congress and saying, we don't need childcare or free college. These are things we don't need. Why are we spending money on them? What are you talking? If you're going to talk about things that people don't need, you probably should have spent a little bit of time going through the bill and picking out some weird thing that happens to be in there, right? Or some weird proposal. The problem is that these are proposals right now, right? They haven't written the bill yet, right? We don't actually have bill language. So it's hard for them to dig really deep and say, look, they're, you know, spending money on, on salamander uh, uh, bridges, you know, for salamanders to cross, you know, uh, the desert. And we don't need to spend money on that. We don't need to borrow from China for that. <laughs> That's actually like a local issue. It, we is, have a, it. it is a local issue. <laughs> He's not <laughs> They're not salamanders. They're three-toed lizards. But anyway, <laughs> it's not in We're this gonna bill. We're going to get texts from our friends. It's not in this bill because it's not a bill yet. But it makes it hard for them to say these are things we don't need when the literally it is just child care and college, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not super strong. Which are cross-prohibitive to so many people, right? So many people. Yeah. And then the other thing that's frustrating is he's even admitting that Joe Biden says that they're not going to raise the taxes on on regular Americans, right? He's even admitting that. He says, anybody that says this is going to be just on the 1% or big corporations, I mean, that's just phony math. Americans understand with this kind of spending, this kind of borrowing, everyone's going to get hit in their wallet. What do you mean Americans understand that? How would Americans have that sense of understanding? That doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, America has spent trillions on wars in the Middle East. And I don't think Americans think, oh, well, as a result of that, my taxes have gone up, right? I mean, does anyone have a sense of that? I don't think so. Not really. People, people, sometimes you'll see a bumper sticker that says something like, you know, let's stop spending on wars in the Middle East and spend instead on school supplies for students, right? Like people have a sense of, oh, we're spending money on that, so we're not spending on something else. But we spend all the time for things in the government, and people don't expect to, to see it hit their wallet. So I don't know. That seems like that seems like phony math to me. Phony reasoning. I think they just liked a good line also. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into the rest of this because the rest of this is about the math. And it's about the math because Chuck Todd says it's about the math. He says, look, let's not focus on how these things are actually going to benefit Americans or let's not have a conversation with Republicans about why these things aren't needed or maybe why the government isn't the right solution for these proposals that are true problems in America, right? As we heard from Chris Wallace, there are true problems of the lack of access to child ch- early childhood education, lack of access to child care, lack of access to college, access to taking care of, of parents and, and older adults. So all these are true issues, but Chuck Todd says, no, 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 no. Meet the Press says, no, 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 no. This is about spending. We're spending a lot of money, right? Oh, my God, this is a lot of money. Let's talk about that because people care about that, apparently. People at Meet the Press do. Take a listen to Chuck Todd's interview with Rob Portman where he's talking about the really important issues of this bill. Republican Senator Rob Portman of Ohio. The issues that people are just staying awake at night talking about. Um, look, you, you just made a you made a very similar case about how, hey, this is 
This is capital expenditures. Most companies, when they make capital expenditures, they borrow money. So is there a case to be made mm-hmm. that maybe on the physical infrastructure, that deficit spending is actually the way to go, especially since the pay for here is going to be arguably the largest sticking point between the two sides? I think, I think the way to go is to depend on user fees, as we always have, and about $200 billion will come in uh, over the next five years you know, through the Highway Trust Fund alone, uh, but also through the government being able to borrow at lower rates. And Secretary Yellen didn't talk about this, but the Infrastructure Bank and, the, and the, the P3 I talked about earlier, that's essentially using the government's ability to borrow at lower rates and, and over time to be able to pay for these projects. So it's, it's not deficit spending, but, but it is because it's a capital expenditure right. paid for in a different way. And that's one reason we can get to this. So really nail-biting stuff there, right? The infrastructure bank, the, what did he say, the P3 he talked about earlier, capital expenditures, deficit spending, the highway trust fund. What is this conversation? What are we talking about here? Why aren't we talking about how this is going to impact the lives of Americans? This is the period where we're talking about this proposal as something new, as something that's going to affect the people who are watching Meet the Press. And the people who are watching Meet the Press, I promise you, don't care about the Highway Trust Fund. They don't care about P3 spending like or, or whether the government can borrow at lower rates. They care about whether their kids are going to be able to go to kindergarten, whether their kids are going to be able to get child care. We, as new parents, care a lot about that. <laughs> Okay, or they we watch Meet the Press a lot, and we really care about any childcare conversation. Yes, but there's no conversation here really about that. I mean, Chuck Todd and Meet the Press were obsessed about this issue about how these spending bills are going to be paid for, and they were not obsessed about the things that the audience probably actually cares about. And so it's just it's just horrible, 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 and it just keeps going and going and going and going all throughout the episode, all about payment, how it's going to be paid for, why isn't it paid for, and a lot of the questions to Janet Yellen, who is the Treasury Secretary for Biden, or to Bernie Sanders, are about how this is going to be paid for under almost the assumption that Democrats are hiding how it's paid for or are going to do it through deficit spending, when One of the most notable things about this proposal is that Joe Biden right away, right from the start, is saying, here's how we're going to pay for it, right? We're not going to do this with deficit spending. I'm going to be direct with you. We're going to raise taxes on corporations. We're going to raise taxes on the 1%. That's how we're going to pay for it. Listen to this question from Chuck Todd to progressive Senator Bernie Sanders. He's an independent from Vermont. He says, I'm curious, your uh, focus, when it comes to seeing these plans get passed, how important is the pay for part of this conversation? Um, How much of this in your mind is you're willing, you know what, deficit spending, these are investments, you'll get return. And how important do you think it is that you reform (laughs) the tax code and use that to pay for this? Well, I think, number one, most importantly, we have to deal with the crises facing this country. Uh, we have massive income and wealth inequality. Half our people live on paycheck to paycheck. Got to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. Got to do that. We have an infrastructure that is collapsing. We have got to dra- address the existential threat of climate change. And when you do that, Chuck, when you make those investments, we create millions of good paying jobs. We have we are the only major country not to guarantee health care to all people as a right. 
the only major country not to have paid family and medical leave. We pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. Hundreds of thousands of kids can't afford to go to college and millions leave school deeply in debt. Well, you know what? You got to address those issues. Meanwhile, you got two people on top who own more wealth than the bottom 40% of America. You got major corporation after major corporation not paying one nickel in federal income tax. Warren Buffett, one of the richest guys in the world, reminds us that the effective tax rate for working families is higher than it is for the billionaire class. So in terms of pay for, yeah, I do think we need progressive taxation, mm -hmm. which says to the very rich, Biden says the cap should be, the, the floor should be 400,000. Yeah. Nobody under that should pay more in taxes. But yes, the very rich and large corporations should stop paying their fair share of taxes to help us rebuild America and create the jobs that we need. So this was very early in the interview with Bernie Sanders. And Chuck Todd's chief interest was, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? And Bernie Sanders goes to the people, goes to his regular stats that he's always throwing out there. But when he got to the end of it, and sometimes, you know, we've heard that kind of spiel from Bernie Sanders a million times. At the end of it, I was like, well, hold on, actually. It, it was more relevant than it often is because these proposals from Biden deal with almost every one of the issues that Bernie Sanders brought up there. But again, you notice Sanders is not being coy about paying for this. In fact, that's a major benefit to him of the bill. And finally, I want to end kind of circling back on one of the things that you praised and we both praised Chris Wallace for doing, and that is asking meaningful, challenging questions to your guests. And of course, one could look back at the question that we just heard to Bernie Sanders and say, was that really a tough question for Bernie Sanders, asking him how important he thought it was to reform the tax code? Probably not a really tough question to Bernie Sanders. Similarly, look at this question to Republican Senator Rob Portman. And in contrast to the really tough, researched questions that Chris Wallace asked Bill Cassidy, Senator Cassidy, Rob Portman got to skate along with questions like this from Chuck Todd. I want to ask uh, about the other parts uh, that President Biden is proposing. And for instance, on the issue of education, he makes makes an argument that, hey, for years we've funded essentially K through 12 and that it's a time that the government essentially add four years of education that it guarantees two on the front end, two on the back end. Um, before we get to whether to pay for that, um, should the government be guaranteeing four more years of education in the 21st century? Well, typically, it's not a federal government responsibility. As you know, feds probably pay uh, about 6 or 7% of K-12 through education. So um, yeah, I think we can provide some incentives for it. I think pre-K makes sense. It's good to give kids a better start in life. There's no question about it. Um, that's you know one reason we do support Head Start at the federal level. Uh, and then with regard to uh, community colleges, I'm a big fan of what community colleges do. What's much more exciting to me in the proposal is the possibility that we would actually be able to use some of the federal support, including Pell Grants, for worker retraining because that's what's really needed is skills training and the opportunity for us to allow people to get a relatively short-term training session to get an industry-recognized certificate in things right. like welding uh, or machining or coding on the, on the IT sector or hospital techs. Those are the jobs we really need right now, these middle skills jobs. And so I would, I would make more of an emphasis on that because that's actually the reality out there is that 
We have a lot of jobs going unfilled. There's something like 500,000 jobs in manufacturing right now being offered and not filled. And one of the reasons is the skills gap. So let's let's close the skills gap. That's, that, to me, that would be the most effective way to use that funding. So do you remember the question there? The question was, should the federal government invest in four more years? Should the government be guaranteeing four more years of education in the 21st century? It's a question based on theoretical values and theoretical investments, as opposed to like, I'm imagining if Chris Wallace had done it saying, people pay out of pocket for pre-K and, you know, for two years of preschool, the average person in Louisiana pays X dollars. Do you think they should continue paying that? Or do you think it should be subsidized by the federal government? You know what I mean? Like, it's the the same exact question, but it gets into the, like, the nuts and bolts of like what the federal government is willing to pay for or not. You're right. It's so theoretical, right? And it's a let me take your temperature on this issue kind of question. The difference between the two is that a challenging question about a proposal from the other side of the aisle should encapsulate some of the arguments for the proposal and challenge the guests to defend their own position. That's what the Sunday shows are for. And we know this Republican's position, Senator Portman, because they oppose this platform of free college and early education. It's pretty obvious that they do, right? So there's no point in asking them if they're for it or not. We know they aren't really for it. So why not challenge their position a little bit? Why not push it? Why not ask them to defend their point? No, well, this and, is doing no, and I think you can do that, that in a way that doesn't assume that the bill like I could see some devil advocate saying like, well, the the journalist shouldn't be supporting or advocating for the bill, but it's not even advocating for the bill or the proposal, the plan by the Biden administration. It's the premise itself that early childhood or two years of college right. is not worth investing, yeah. right? It's it's the premise that needs to be challenged and not just an opportunity to share your premise, which is what Chuck Todd offers Senator Portman here. Yeah, I, Like, she- help me understand how you feel about not giving people help for early childhood. Like you could have you could have said that and it'd be the same thing too. Right. Instead he's just like should the government guarantee this education? And then he says in the 21st century as if everyone has read three or four books on the importance of education in the 21st century and is well aware of the fact that other countries in the world spend more time, more money educating their youth than the United States does, right? Yeah. There's, a, there's a whole literature behind those that phrase in the 21st century, but it's not in the question. And the yeah, audience and, isn't made aware of it. And I think, and the last thing I think I'll say about this is, of course, the journalist can't explain like every, not even academic, but just, you know, every concept can't be explained or every they have to interview their guests they don't have time to like educate the viewer on every single point i think there's a way to do it to one inform the viewer and two signal to your guests like hey answer this for the average viewer for the average american what does your positioning mean right and I don't have the clip because I wasn't planning on talking about it, but I thought John Dickerson did a really good point of this when he was interviewing Senator Tim Scott and it was about qualified immunity. And he explained very quickly and like 
I don't know, five to eight seconds what qualified immunity is. And Senator Scott, I thought, gave an interesting answer as to why the burden of responsibility needs to be on the employer and not the employee and why he's supportive of qualified immunity. The whole thing was like explaining to the average American, right? And not talking about a premise just for the talk, just for the sake of talking of a premise. Yeah, totally. That's that's a great way to go. But it's not here. And yeah. it gets frustrating when we don't see challenging questions, right? Now, just because you bring up a topic doesn't mean you had like a valuable conversation exactly, about said topic. Exactly. And that's what we want. Valuable conversations. And I want to say Portman brings up some interesting points, despite the, the, the questions that were asked. But I'm sure he would have way more interesting points if they were asked better. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Naomi, let's get to journalism real quickly. What do you want to focus on here? What stood out to you? So my journalism, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit because it's essentially just an ode to John Dickerson because... <laughs> <laughs> And I talked about it a little bit with you, Brendan. It was so refreshing to have this episode hosted by John Dickerson. And I was trying to understand why his approach felt so different than the other hosts and, you know, why I was so drawn to it. And I got to thinking that John Dickerson interviews in a way that is very atypical from most journalists, definitely atypical for most male journalists, in that he is very firm but also has kind of like a warm, soft tenor about his journalistic style. And it really seems to be coming from a place of inquisitiveness and curiosity rather than interrogation, which changed- It's so different from a lot of other Which is so, so different. People are so less defensive in his interviews. People try to be more explanatory and- I think it's something that we definitely don't see from many male hosts. That's for damn sure. And I think even oftentimes female hosts often can be very cold, can be very cutting even sometimes. And I think it's one to be very demanding to their guests because I think in our chauvinistic society, a lot of times people don't take women enough seriously enough. And so journalism overall has a very kind of semi-aggressive, semi-in-your-face type approach, which I usually like. But John Dickerson is so far from that, that it's so refreshing to hear the conversations he's able to facilitate. And I think that is what is so stellar about his approach. And we saw this in a few ways. And I it, it stood out First and foremost, in his interview with Senator Ron Klain, as I mentioned, he interviewed the chief of staff today. That inquisitiveness came up in the conversation with Ron Klain when they were talking about the vaccine patents and whether or not they would be released to India to combat this horrible, massive surge of COVID cases that's just devastating that country. Yesterday in India, a staggering 400,000 cases The Indian prime minister called the president and asked him to join an effort to lift patents on the vaccination so they can be produced. Where's the president's head on that? You know, we are rushing aid to India. We are sending five of those giant C5 uh, planes. 
uh, which include uh, medicine supplies and the supplies for India to make its vaccines. India has its own vaccine, the COVID shield vaccine. Uh, production slowed there because they don't have the scarce raw materials to make that. We've sent uh, enough raw materials to make 20 million doses immediately more of their vaccine. Uh, intellectual property rights is part of the problem, but really manufacturing is the biggest problem. We have a factory here in the U.S. that has the full intellectual property rights to make the vaccine. So, they aren't making doses because the factory has problems. But quickly, the prime minister asked the president to lift it. Yes or no, Willie, or call for lifting. The, uh, our uh, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai is going to the WTO next week to start talks on how we can get this vaccine uh, more widely distributed, more widely licensed, more widely shared. Uh, we're going to have more to say about that in the days to come. Now, this is so interesting because it was a broad question to start. And Ron Klain's interview is pretty exhaustive and takes a very interesting approach in trying to explain that it's actually raw materials and manufacturing that is the biggest roadblock. And if we can get India raw materials, they might have the capacity to just increase their manufacturing of the vaccine itself. But John Dickerson is such an active listener. He follows up to ask, but what the prime minister wants is the lifting of patents. What's right. happening there? Yeah. And then Ron Klain says, uh, our U.S. trade rep is going to be saying more about this at the WTO, at the World Trade Organization. Like, that's actually news, right? That last yeah. bit. That then changes the dynamics of the WTO meeting to then say, like, well, what is the news of the Biden administration yeah. going to happen? If they don't say anything, there's now an opportunity to give follow up saying, hey, Chief of Staff Klain on Sunday, May 2nd, said that something was going to come up. Where is the answer on that? Like, it changes the whole causal effect of this entire meeting to see what the U.S. is going to be saying about releasing those patents. So it's it's a broad question, very, very active listening, and then an effective, illuminating follow-up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Dickerson, his approach is very unique on the Sunday shows and among journalists overall. Uh, I did want to note here as well, though, that Ron Klain is just so much more informed <laughs> yeah. than a lot of the other Biden administration officials. Literally, Anita Dunn, who's a special advisor to President Biden, was on one of the Sunday shows, asked about something like this. And mentioned that there are, you know, planes, we're sending planes full of it. And Ron Klain is like, the planes are C-5 planes, and we are sending five of those planes. And on those planes are medicine supplies and supplies for India to make 20 million doses of their vaccine. Like, holy cow, that There's is so, so much specific more and detailed and just like versus, oh, we're sending planes. Of we're supplies. sending materials. Yeah. Yeah. So there was another moment in the clean interview with Dickerson that I also wanted to note, and it's when John Dickerson is asking Klain about essentially inefficient government or whether or not there's going to be any spending cuts to make room for this infrastructure plan. Even believers in activist government think that the government can be very inefficient. With a government plan that is this big, is the president going to offer any spending cuts at all? Uh, John, first of all, I think people have watched their government deliver 220 million COVID shots in 100 days. They've watched us deliver a rescue plan that took this economy that was dead in the water 100 days ago and created more new jobs, 
in the president's first hundred days than any president in history has created in his first hundred days. So I think what the public is seeing is that America is on the move again. And these common sense measures to give people some help with their child care, oh. to give people uh, uh, some money, a tax Let cut to help raise their kids, are the, is the kind of common sense action they want to see this country take now. I didn't hear an answer on spending cuts, but we're going to move on. Here's your, my question about how the president's going to work this through Congress. So... <laughs> Again, I think what Dickerson does so well here is he's not like attacking Klain about not answering his questions, right? But he observes it. He notes it. He lets the audience know. And overall, like you mentioned, Klain gives very kind of exhaustive questions explaining something. But if it doesn't answer John Dickerson's original question, Dickerson will make that very clear. Both the host and the guest in this instance, Dickerson and Klain have very distinct objectives and sometimes they match up. And when they don't, John Dickerson just kind of like plants a flag saying like, hey, I noticed this. Yeah. And, and everyone else should, too. And that's signposting, as we talked, uh, have talked about in the past. I actually saw Martha Raddatz do the same thing in her interview with Senator John Barrasso. At the end of the interview, they go back and forth on on how Barrasso feels about McConnell and Liz Cheney being thrown under the bus by Trump followers. Barrasso twice kind of refuses to really answer the question, and she ends the interview saying, okay, that question not exactly answered, but we appreciate you coming on this morning, Senator. Yeah, it's it's so important. It's super important for guests of your preferred party or not, <laughs> just for good journalism. Absolutely. And to kind of close out my little ode to John Dickerson, the closing thank you was so good. It essentially kind of walks you through the process of the vaccine manufacturing and how he and N feels having received it. When doctors Cataleen Carrico and Drew Weissman got their COVID-19 vaccines last December, they received a standing ovation. They were at the end of a global vaccine bucket brigade that they had helped start. Their life's work with mRNA was at the center of the cure in those syringes going into their arms. It had helped doctors like BioNTech's Ugar Shaheen and Aslam Turechi, who joined the vaccine push with Pfizer scientist Katherine Jansen. We can call it a miracle, but a miracle always has a sense of it just happened. It didn't just happen. Next in the brigade were the volunteers who tested the new vaccine. Jennifer Haller was the very first to participate in the Moderna trial. The value that I'm going to add to, um, hopefully f for everybody, will, will certainly outweigh any risks that, that could happen. The vials spun through their factory chutes, quickened by Operation Warp Speed. D-Day was the beginning of the end, and that's where we are today. Airlines and shipping companies took it from there. Do you feel like you were delivering hope this morning? Absolutely. They know it's going to make a meaningful difference in the lives of so many. Pilots handed to truck drivers. After many years, the UPS, this has been my most important load that I've hauled. The supply was spread over 60,000 vaccination sites, including the one at the New York Department of Health, where it went into my arm. This is not an exhaustive list of all those who lent a hand in turning an idea into a cure. 
But the winding chain of effort illustrates the magnitude of the toil of thousands, most of them out of sight, which has led to over 146 million Americans being vaccinated. Hearts lightened, summer plans opened, hugs finally deployed. We are grateful beneficiaries. Our gratitude is tempered, though, by the stark sorrow of the pandemic that is still shaking our world. The links in the chain of vaccination have given those of us who received it a chance at the future. As a recipient, thank you. I hope that all of that work will inspire all of us to be worthy of it. I just love that shout out to both the scientist and the like UPS truck delivery and to the volunteers and just showing the long journey it took for us to even get here potentially on the path of normalcy. And I just love that line at the end of hopefully we who are lucky to get the vaccine after so much loss, like, let's just be worthy of all that work and do something good. Yeah, I thought that was so, so powerful. What a powerful way to make the argument for people to get the vaccine to say, look at all the people who sacrificed and worked so hard to get here to this place. And now you're going to refuse it? Like, are you crazy? I mean, I mean, that's the that's subtext, not, right? That's the <laughs> subtext, but it's a powerful subtext. Yes. And it's an argument you don't see made very often. You see made often the argument of, look at the people who have died and the people, you know, and the danger and all this and that. But, you know, look at all these people who have worked hard to make this happen and who have made true, you know, immeasurable contributions. Totally. Just really, 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 really well done. So that's my ode to John Dickerson. I look forward to getting more episodes of Face the Nation with him. Brendan, what is your something in journalism? Well, it's almost like we just planned this whole thing together, which we didn't. We planned separately in parallel play, as they would say to kid about kids. <laughs> Number of kid references now, Brendan. <laughs> But mine is very much a sort of ode to another host, and that is Jake Tapper. Interesting. Who I feel like is doing some of the most vital work of any of the hosts on the Sunday shows. He just takes his role super seriously, and he wears his feelings out on his sleeve, as we know, of Jake Tapper. At the end of this episode, he has, you know, cleared his show not only of his panel, but of his state of the cartoonian, all that's gone. And instead, he has these little asides that I feel like harken back to Edward R. Murrow. If you've ever seen Good Night and Good Luck, you'll know who that is, or maybe you know it from the actual person, Edward R. Murrow. <laughs> but, you know, legendary journalist who was willing to look at the camera and say, listen, folks, here's what's really going on. Jake Tapper took a moment I thought was excellent to highlight a story that more and more journalists and more Americans should be made aware of. We certainly have seen it for a while. We've seen President Trump lie repeatedly. It's just kind of like, I think people have accepted that that's just who Trump is. He's somebody who, you know, will, will tell a tall tale or stretch something to his own advantage. And that's just part of his bravado, whatever, you know, people can just kind of shrug it off. And that's Trump. But no, it's the whole Republican Party right now is operating on falsehoods. And Jake Tapper called it out in one of the most powerful, well-written, researched and executed short little asides 
that I have seen on the Sunday shows. And Jake Tapper begins it calling to attention a lot of the things that we see on the Sunday shows all the time and saying, look, this isn't like just a politician trying to spin their way out of an issue. This is straight up making crap up. And it is become and becoming appallingly normal in today's Republican Party. Take a listen to a few of the highlights. Facts and truth often get beaten up on their way to you. There's context, spin, narrative, people make mistakes. But I want to talk today about the notion of just downright falsehoods, lies, inventions, because there were several moments this week in which complete and utter nonsense was injected into mainstream politics. One was a story that twisted the conclusions of an academic paper from 2020 about reducing greenhouse gases to essentially invent the idea that President Biden's climate plan will limit Americans to one hamburger a month. It it was nonsense. Biden had nothing to do with any proposal like that. The story was reported by the usual MAGA media, but It was so false, by last Monday, even some of them acknowledged the lie and issued corrections. Nonetheless, on Wednesday, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy was still out there pushing the lie about Biden as Hamburglar. He wants control of your life. He's going to control how much meat you can eat. Can you imagine that? Can I imagine that? I mean, I would like to imagine a House Republican leader who didn't find it so easy to lie to the American people. But too many leaders of the GOP are just all in on pure nonsense. Last Monday, the chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna Romney McDaniel, tweeted, quote, after learning officials are handing out Kamala Harris's book to migrants in facilities at the border, it's worth asking, was Harris paid for these books? Is she profiting from Biden's border crisis, unquote? This was a reference to another downright lie. Look, I'm not talking about opinions. If people want to rail against Biden's border policies or his six trillion dollars worth of proposals or whatever, have at it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about made up convoluted crap. And it's having an impact. Look at the polls showing that almost half of Republican voters will likely refuse to get vaccinated while Republican leaders with zero medical expertise, zero, such as Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, take to the airwaves to contradict health experts urging vaccinations. The incentive structure in the Republican Party and its media does not punish those who spread bad medical advice or lies. In fact, quite the opposite. Telling the truth as a Republican official can be hazardous to your political health. It's my opinion that the United States needs a healthy, thriving, fact-based Republican Party. It is difficult to look at these events, all of them just from the last week, and conclude that we have one. So what's your uh, initial impressions of that, Naomi? I think this is helpful for one, helping people better identify these blatant lies and utter nonsense, but also by making it so clear, you also put on blast all the networks that are willing to talk to these people to begin with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess the the important follow-up is, 
So are you not going to invite these folks on your show then if they're just using outright lies? Or how are you going to ensure that when you're trying to hold them accountable with meaningful journalistic interviews that you're not going to further spread those lies? But it does make me think of Meet the Press and how on Meet the Press these days, we very rarely see, and I think that was kind of the case on State of the Union today as well, we rarely see Republicans of this ilk, right? Instead, we see people like, well, on State of the Union this week, we saw Cindy McCain. We often see people like Susan Collins, right? We see Republicans who maybe are a little athwart their party right now, because I think journalists are saying we're not going to have a part in spreading this. But overall, Jake Tapper's work here is so important, and it almost makes me wish that a show like a Meet the Press in the same way Meet the Press said, we're going to have an episode talking about democracy under threat. It'd be great if they said, look, this is one of the top stories in politics right now, is that an entire political party is being drawn into not just the culture wars, which we're commonly talking about Republicans being obsessed over, but outright lies. And it's certainly not new, but now it has become so mainstream, so, so, so mainstream. So I just wanted to highlight Jake Tapper and the vitality with which he is approaching his work. And it's interesting to just think about the evolution of journalists over the course of their career. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen a lot of journalists during President Trump's time in office talking about how they saw their show in that moment or the way their career has changed. And we're in this new phase. Right. And I think that evolution is healthy. All right, Naomi. Well, that's it for today's episode. What would you say is the dialogue challenge this week? So how about taking a page from John Dickerson and trying to approach even challenging conversations with that level of warmth and inquisitiveness and willingness to be firm when necessary, right? As you said, Naomi, but but try to be, as you said, inquisitive without being interrogative, right? not an interrogation it's a conversation and i think maybe part of that maybe the key to that is recognizing that people who you might be arguing with they might seem really dug into their side but people can change their minds and someone's position today doesn't necessarily represent their entire being right people are multifaceted and they also change so being open to change and recognizing others can change as well absolutely evolution's pretty healthy Well, if you have any comments about our evolution, your evolution, the evolution of the shows, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. And you can you can tweet at me at Beastidal and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. And if you have a moment to please go to Apple Podcasts and rate the episode or rate our show in particular. I don't think you can rate individual episodes. Nope. We are the only ones who get to rate individual episodes (laughs) (laughs) at this point. But yes, it's super helpful to the show. It helps other people find it. It helps other people when they are looking for things say, oh, it looks like a number of people have found this show meaningful. And uh, we would very much appreciate it. So if you take a moment and do that, it would be very much appreciated. Absolutely. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.